Section 50 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 2, Part 6. Next morning he came down as usual. He was a wreck. He said nothing, and his mother dared not question him. She knew from the gossip of the neighborhood. All day he stayed sitting by the fire, silent, feverish, and with bent head, like a little old man, and when he was alone he wept in silence. In the evening the editor of the socialist paper came to see him. Naturally he had heard, and wished to have details. Christophe was touched by his coming, and interpreted it naively as a mark of sympathy and a desire for forgiveness on the part of those who had compromised him. He made a point of seeming to regret nothing, and he let himself go and said everything that was rankling in him. It was some solace for him to talk freely to a man who shared his hatred of oppression. The other urged him on. He saw a good chance for his journal in the event, and an opportunity for a scandalous article, for which he expected Christophe to provide him with material if he did not write it himself for he thought that after such an explosion the court musician would put his very considerable political talents and his no less considerable little titbits of secret information about the court at the service of the cause. As he did not plume himself on his subtlety, he presented the thing rawly in the crudest light. Christophe started. He declared that he would write nothing, and said that any attack on the Grand Duke that he might make would be interpreted as an act of personal vengeance, and that he would be more reserved now that he was free than when, not being free, he ran some risk in saying what he thought. The journalist could not understand his scruples. He thought Christophe narrow and clerical at heart, but he also decided that Christophe was afraid. He said, "'Oh, well, leave it to us.' I will write it myself. You need not bother about it. Christophe begged him to say nothing, but he had no means of restraining him. Besides, the journalist declared that the affair was not his concern only. The insult touched the paper, which had the right to avenge itself. There was nothing to be said to that. All that Christophe could do was to ask him, on his word of honor, not to abuse certain of his confidences which had been made to his friend and not to the journalist. The other made no difficulty about that. Christophe was not reassured by it. He knew too well how imprudent he had been. When he was left alone, he turned over everything that he had said, and shuddered. Without hesitating for a moment, he wrote to the journalist, imploring him once more not to repeat what he had confided to him. The poor wretch repeated it in part himself in the letter. Next day, as he opened the paper with feverish haste, the first thing he read was his story at great length on the front page. Everything that he had said on the evening before was immeasurably enlarged, having suffered that peculiar deformation which everything has to suffer in its passage through the mind of a journalist. The article attacked the Grand Duke and the court with low invective. Certain details which it gave were too personal to Christophe, too obviously known only to him for the article not to be attributed to him in its entirety. Christophe was crushed by this fresh blow, 
As he read, a cold sweat came out on his face. When he had finished, he was dumbfounded. He wanted to rush to the office of the paper, but his mother withheld him, not unreasonably being fearful of his violence. He was afraid of it himself. He felt that if he went there he would do something foolish, and he stayed, and did a very foolish thing. He wrote an indignant letter to the journalist in which he reproached him for his conduct in insulting terms, disclaimed the article, and broke with the party. The disclaimer did not appear. Christophe wrote again to the paper, demanding that his letter should be published. They sent him a copy of his first letter, written on the night of the interview and confirming it. They asked if they were to publish that, too. He felt that he was in their hands. Thereupon he unfortunately met the indiscreet interviewer in the street. He could not help telling him of his contempt for him. Next day the paper, without a spark of shame, published an insulting paragraph about the servants of the court, who even when they are dismissed remain servants and are incapable of being free. A few allusions to recent events left no room for doubt that Christophe was meant. When it became evident to everybody that Christophe had no single support, there suddenly cropped up a host of enemies whose existence he had never suspected. All those whom he had offended, directly or indirectly, either by personal criticism or by attacking their ideas and taste, now took the offensive and avenged themselves with interest. The general public whom Christophe had tried to shake out of their apathy were quite pleased to see the insolent young man who had presumed to reform opinion and disturb the rest of people of property taken down a peg. Christophe was in the water. Everybody did their best to duck him. They did not come down upon him all at once. One tried first to spy out the land. Christophe made no response, and he struck more lustily. Others followed, and then the whole gang of them. Some joined in the sport simply for fun, like puppies who think it funny to leave their mark in inappropriate places. They were the flying squadron of incompetent journalists who, knowing nothing, tried to hide their ignorance by belauding the victors and belaboring the vanquished. Others brought the weight of their principles, and they shouted like deaf people. Nothing was left of anything when they had passed. They were the critics, with the criticism which kills. Fortunately for Christophe, he did not read the papers. A few devoted friends took care to send him the most insulting, but he left them in a heap on his desk and never thought of opening them. It was only towards the end of it that his eyes were attracted by a great red mark round an article. He read that his leader were like the roaring of a wild beast, that his symphonies seemed to have come from a madhouse, that his art was hysterical, his harmony spasmodic, as a change from the dryness of his heart and the emptiness of his thought. The critic, who was well known, ended with these words. Aircraft, as a journalist, has lately given astounding proof of his style and taste, which roused irresistible merriment in musical circles. He was then given the friendly advice rather to devote himself to composition, but the latest products of his muse have shown that this advice, though well meant, was bad. Aircraft should certainly devote himself to journalism. After reading the article, which prevented Christophe working the whole morning, Naturally, he began to look for the other hostile papers, and became utterly demoralized. 
but Louisa, who had a mania for moving everything lying about by way of tidying up, had already burned them. He was irritated at first and then comforted, and he held out the last of the papers to her and said that she had better do the same with that. Other rebuffs hurt him more. A quartet which he had sent in manuscript to a well-known society at Frankfurt was rejected unanimously and returned without explanation. An overture which an orchestra at Cologne seemed disposed to perform was returned after a month as unplayable. But the worst of all was inflicted on him by an orchestral society in the town. The Kappelmeister, H. Euphrat, its conductor, was quite a good musician, but like many conductors he had no curiosity of mind. He suffered, or rather he carried to extremes, the laziness peculiar to his class, which consists in going on and on investigating familiar works, while it shuns any really new work like the plague. He was never tired of organizing Beethoven, Mozart, or Schumann festivals. In conducting these works he had only to let himself be carried along by the purring of the familiar rhythms. On the other hand, contemporary music was intolerable to him. He dared not admit it, and pretended to be friendly towards young talent. In fact, whenever he was brought a work built on the old lines, a sort of hotchpotch of works that had been new fifty years before, he would receive it very well, and would even produce it ostentatiously and force it upon the public. It did not disturb either his effects or the way in which the public was accustomed to be moved. On the other hand, he was filled with a mixture of contempt and hatred for anything which threatened to disturb that arrangement and put him to extra trouble. Contempt would predominate if the innovator had no chance of emerging from obscurity. But if there was any danger of his succeeding, then hatred would predominate, of course, until the moment when he had gained an established success. Christophe was not yet in that position, far from it, and so he was much surprised when he was informed by indirect overtures that Herr H. Euphrat would be very glad to produce one of his compositions. It was all the more unexpected, as he knew that the Kappelmeister was an intimate friend of Brahms and others whom he had maltreated in his criticisms. Being honest himself, he credited his adversaries with the same generous feelings which he would have had himself. He supposed that now that he was down they wished to show him that they were above petty spite. He was touched by it. He wrote effusively to Herr Euphrat and sent him a symphonic poem. The conductor replied through his secretary, coldly but politely, acknowledging the receipt of his work and adding that, in accordance with the rules of the society, the symphony would be given out to the orchestra immediately and put to the test of a general rehearsal before it could be accepted for public hearing. A rule is a rule. Christophe had to bow to it, though it was a pure formality which served to weed out the lucubrations of amateurs, which were sometimes a nuisance. A few weeks later, Christophe was told that his composition was to be rehearsed. On principle, everything was done privately, and even the author was not permitted to be present at the rehearsal. But by a generally agreed indulgence, the author was always admitted, only he did not show himself. Everybody knew it, and everybody pretended not to know it. On the appointed day, one of his friends brought Christophe to the hall, where he sat at the back of a box. He was surprised to see that at this private rehearsal the hall, at least the ground-floor seats, were almost all filled, 
a crowd of dilettante idlers and critics moved about and chattered to each other. The orchestra had to ignore their presence. They began with the Brahms Rhapsody for alto, chorus of male voices, and orchestra on a fragment of the Herzreise im Winter of Goethe. Christoph, who detested the majestic sentimentality of the work, thought that perhaps the Brahmins had introduced it politely to avenge themselves by forcing him to hear a composition of which he had written irreverently. The idea made him laugh, and his good humor increased when after the Rhapsody there came two other productions by known musicians whom he had taken to task. There seemed to be no doubt about their intentions, and while he could not help making a face at it, he thought that after all it was quite fair tactics, and failing the music, he appreciated the joke. It even amused him to applaud ironically with the audience, which made manifest its enthusiasm for Brahms and his like. At last it came to Christoph's symphony. He saw from the way the orchestra and the people in the hall were looking at his box that they were aware of his presence. He hid himself. He waited with the catch at his heart which every musician feels at the moment when the conductor's wand is raised and the waters of the music gather in silence before bursting their dam. He had never yet heard his work played. How would the creatures of his dreams live? How would their voices sound? He felt their roaring within him, and he leaned over the abyss of sounds, waiting fearfully for what should come forth. What did come forth was a nameless thing, a shapeless hotchpotch. Instead of the bold columns, which were to support the front of the building, the cords came crumbling down like a building in ruins. There was nothing to be seen but the dust of mortar. For a moment Christophe was not quite sure whether they were really playing his work. He cast back for the train, the rhythm of his thoughts. He could not recognize it. It went on babbling and hiccuping, like a drunken man clinging close to the wall, and he was overcome with shame, as though he had himself been seen in that condition. It was of no avail to think that he had not written such stuff. When an idiotic interpreter destroys a man's thoughts, he has always a moment of doubt when he asks himself in consternation if he is himself responsible for it. The audience never asks such a question. The audience believes in the interpreter, in the singers, in the orchestra, whom they are accustomed to hear as they believe in their newspaper. They cannot make a mistake. If they say absurd things, it is the absurdity of the author. This audience was the less inclined to doubt because it liked to believe. Christophe tried to persuade himself that the Koppelmeister was aware of the hash and would stop the orchestra and begin again. The instruments were not playing together. The horn had missed his beat and had come in a bar too late. He went on for a few minutes and then stopped quietly to clean his instrument. Certain passages for the oboe had absolutely disappeared. It was impossible for the most skilled ear to pick up the thread of a musical idea, or even to imagine that there was one. Fantastic instrumentations, humoristic sallies, became grotesque through the coarseness of the execution. It was lamentably stupid, the work of an idiot, of a joker who knew nothing of music. Christophe tore his hair. He tried to interrupt, but the friend who was with him held him back assuring him that the Herr Kappelmeister must surely see the faults of the execution and would put everything right, that Christophe must not show himself, and that if he made any remark 
it would have a very bad effect. He made Christoph sit at the very back of the box. Christoph obeyed, but he beat his head with his fists, and every fresh monstrosity drew from him a groan of indignation and misery. "'The wretches! The wretches!' he groaned and squeezed his hands tight to keep himself from crying out. Now mingled with the wrong notes, there came up to him the muttering of the audience, who were beginning to be restless. At first it was only a tremor, but soon Christophe was left without a doubt. They were laughing. The musicians of the orchestra had given the signal. Some of them did not conceal their hilarity. The audience, certain then that the music was laughable, rocked with laughter. This merriment became general. It increased at the return of a very rhythmical motif, which the double basses accentuated in a burlesque fashion. Only the Kapellmeister went on through the uproar, imperturbably beating time. At last they reached the end. The best things come to an end. It was the turn of the audience. They exploded with delight, an explosion which lasted for several minutes. Some hissed. Others applauded ironically. The wittiest of all shouted, Encore! A bass voice coming from a stage box began to imitate the grotesque motif. Other jokers followed suit and imitated it also. Someone shouted, Author! It was long since these witty folk had been so highly entertained. When the tumult was calmed down a little, the Koppelmeister, standing quite impassive with his face turned towards the audience, though he was pretending not to see it, the audience was still supposed to be non-existent, made a sign to the audience that he was about to speak. There was a cry of, "'Shh!' and silence. He waited a moment longer. Then his voice was curt, cold, and cutting. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'I should certainly not have let that be played through to the end if I had not wished to make an example of the gentleman who has dared to write offensively of the great Brahms.' That was all and jumping down from his stand he went out amid cheers from the delighted audience. They tried to recall him. The applause went on for a few minutes longer. But he did not return. The orchestra went away. The audience decided to go, too. The concert was over. It had been a good day. Christophe had gone already. Hardly had he seen the wretched conductor leave his desk when he had rushed from the box— he plunged down the stairs from the first floor to meet him and slap his face. His friend who had brought him followed and tried to hold him back, but Christophe brushed him aside and almost threw him downstairs. He had reason to believe that the fellow was concerned in the trick which had been played him. Fortunately for H. Euphrat and himself, the door leading to the stage was shut, and his furious knocking could not make them open it. However, the audience was beginning to leave the hall. Christophe could not stay there. He fled. He was in an indescribable condition. He walked blindly, waving his arms, rolling his eyes, talking aloud like a madman. He suppressed his cries of indignation and rage. The street was almost empty. The concert hall had been built the year before in a new neighborhood, a little way out of the town, and Christophe instinctively fled towards the country across the empty fields in which were a few lonely shanties and scaffoldings surrounded by fences. His thoughts were murderous. He could have killed the man who had put such an affront upon him. Alas! And when he had killed him, would there be any change in the animosity of those people whose insulting laughter was still ringing in his ears? They were too many. He could do nothing against them. 
They were all agreed, they who were divided about so many things, to insult and crush him. It was past understanding. There was hatred in them. What had he done to them all? There were beautiful things in him, things to do good and make the heart big. He had tried to save them, to make others enjoy them. He thought they would be happy like himself. Even if they did not like them, they should be grateful to him for his intentions. They could, if need be, show him kindly where he had been wrong. But that they should take such a malignant joy in insulting and odiously travestying his ideas, in trampling them underfoot, and killing him by ridicule, how was it possible? In his excitement he exaggerated their hatred. He thought it much more serious than such mediocre people could ever be. He sobbed. What have I done to them? He choked. He thought that all was lost, just as he did when he was a child coming into contact for the first time with human wickedness. And when he looked about him he suddenly saw that he had reached the edge of the mill-race at the very spot where a few years before his father had been drowned, and at once he thought of drowning himself, too. He was just at the point of making the plunge. But as he leaned over the steep bank, fascinated by the calm, clean aspect of the water, a tiny bird in a tree by his side began to sing, to sing madly. He held his breath to listen. The water murmured, the ripening corn moaned as it waved under the soft, caressing wind. The poplars shivered. Behind the hedge on the road, out of sight, bees in hives in a garden filled the air with their scented music. From the other side of the stream a cow was chewing the cud and gazing with soft eyes. A little fair-haired girl was sitting on a wall, with a light basket on her shoulders, like a little angel with wings, and she was dreaming and swinging her bare legs, and humming aimlessly. Far away in a meadow a white dog was leaping and running in wide circles. Christophe leaned against a tree and listened and watched the earth in spring. He was caught up by the peace and joy of these creatures. He could forget, he could forget. Suddenly he clasped the tree with his arms and leaned his cheek against it. He threw himself on the ground, he buried his face in the grass, he laughed nervously, happily. All the beauty, the grace, the charm of life wrapped him round, imbued his soul, and he sucked them up like a sponge. He thought, Why are you so beautiful, and they, men, so ugly? No matter. He loved it. He loved it. He felt that he would always love it, and that nothing could ever take it from him. He held the earth to his breast. He held life to his breast. I love you. You are mine. They cannot take you from me. Let them do what they will. Let them make me suffer. Suffering also is life. Christophe began bravely to work again. He refused to have anything more to do with men of letters, well-named, makers of phrases, the sterile babblers, journalists, critics, the exploiters and traffickers of art. As for musicians, he would waste no more time in battling with their prejudices and jealousy. They did not want him? Very well. He did not want them. He had his work to do. He would do it. The court had given him back his liberty. He was grateful for it. He was grateful to the people for their hostility. He could work in peace. Louisa approved with all her heart. She had no ambition. She was not a craft. 
She was like neither his father nor his grandfather. She did not want honors or reputation for her son. She would have liked him to be rich and famous, but if those advantages could only be bought at the price of so much unpleasantness, she much preferred not to bother about them. She had been more upset by Christophe's grief over his rupture with the palace than by the event itself, and she was heartily glad that he had quarreled with the review and newspaper people. She had a peasant's distrust of blackened paper. It was only a waste of time and made enemies. She had sometimes heard his young friends of the review talking to Christophe. She had been horrified by their malevolence. They tore everything to pieces and said horrible things about everybody, and the worse things they said the better pleased they were. She did not like them. No doubt they were very clever and very learned, but they were not kind, and she was very glad that Christophe saw no more of them. She was full of common sense. What good were they to him? They may say, write, and think what they like of me, said Christophe. They cannot prevent my being myself. What do their ideas or their art matter to me? I deny them. End of section 50